Ask London. Becca's already explained what it is that we're doing, so I won't explain it again. Let's just roll the video, and we'll see that the video has a certain um, symmetry to the previous video that was just shown, but perhaps from a different perspective. I believe that faith and spirituality kind of comes in many shapes and sizes and can look for it lots of different ways. I have a huge problem with the ownership of a sort of absolute truth. And that we all find it in different things, whether that's God or religion, organised religion or gods or nature or humanity and the wonderful things that human beings do for each other. So the Muslims, you know, that religion is later than Christianity and Christianity is later than Judaism and the Jews think they're the chosen people. Just all of that sort of stuff to me seems like pure arrogance. There should be a religion, religion of Abraham, and we should all follow the religion of his everyone's equal and that there isn't one God that's better than the other. It's like a thing of making yourself special and looking down on other people and saying, you're not good enough, we've got the truth. For me, um, it's not the truth, but I think truth is subjective. We all have our own, we all find our own truths. And I think so long as we can be tolerant and agree that the main aim is to live a good life, and a life that, as I said, serves others, serves the wider community, is happy, is joyful, and that's what's really the most important thing. Great. Well, as I say, each week we're really grateful, aren't we, to people that these are friends of ours who've taken the time to put their questions and objections to camera. I think it takes no small degree of courage to do so, so we're really grateful to them. And indeed, if you're here this morning, uh, particularly to engage with this whole issue, then we're really glad that you're here. Thank you for taking the time to do so. So, as I say, in slight contrast to the previous video, the idea of truth is being, being questioned. What about truth? Is there such a thing as truth, an exclusive truth? And what gives Christians or any religious group the right to claim an exclusive truth. Isn't that, frankly, a bit arrogant, a bit superior? Can it even lead to intolerance and discrimination and so on? This is a common objection or an increasingly common objection in our culture, uh, um, kind of discussing the idea of truth full stop. Now, let's be clear what Christians mean by having a claim to truth. What we uh, don't mean is that everything that's true is found in the Bible. Because, of course, lots of things that are clearly true are not in the Bible. Um, there are all sorts of things that whether I had, I had a cup of tea this morning or the fact that the root of 25 is five, there are plenty of things that are demonstrably true that aren't found in the Bible. But what we do mean is that, yes, Jesus Christ claimed to have a unique truth, perhaps is the best way of putting it, a unique exclusive truth. He said perhaps most famously in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the question is, what do we understand by that? And how does that claim to truth um, relate and connect with the way in which we as modern people understand truth today? So three steps perhaps to see if we can engage with this issue. First of all, let's ask what is the problem with exclusive truth? And secondly, let's ask what's the problem with relative truth or subjective truth, as one contributor put it. And thirdly, let's ask, is there a possibility of grace and truth going hand in hand or grace and love or truth and love as the previous video said, going hand in hand. So first of all, what about the problem of a claim to an exclusive truth? 
I was reading a, an essay this week by an academic called Professor Isaiah Berlin. He's an interesting guy, born in Eastern Europe in 1909, and as a result, witnessed some of the worst things about the 20th century. And he, um, as a result, was very concerned to protect freedom and became a strong advocate of what he and now many of us call pluralism as against monism, which is kind of one set of truths. And in the final essay before he died, he said this. The enemy of pluralism is monism, the ancient belief that there is a single harmony of truths into which everything, if it is genuine, in the end must be made to fit. The consequence of this belief is that those who know command those who do not. To cause pain, to kill, to torture are in general rightly condemned. But if these things are done not for my personal benefit but for an ism, socialism, nationalism, fascism, communism, fanatically held religious belief, or progress, or the fulfillment of the laws of history, then they are in order. And he went on to say that monism, frankly, is just one step away from despotism. I think he puts the point very well, the danger of exclusive truth. From the academic to the more everyday, let me put it like this, one uh, young man in New York said this to his church leader. He said, religion has led to untold strife, division and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. Now personally, I've got a lot of sympathy with these views, both academically, if you like, expressed by Isaiah Berlin and more colloquially expressed by that young man in New York, because the fact is that religions and their exclusive claims to truth certainly can lead to oppression and, and arrogance. Religion can erode peace on earth, definitely. And one of the reasons behind that, I think, is because religion has an ability to expose the slippery slope of the human heart. What do I mean by that? Well, each religion, if you think about it, informs its uh, followers that they have the truth. And therefore, as a result, it's not too difficult to then feel superior to those that don't have the truth. Furthermore, religion tells people that they're saved and connected to God by devotedly performing that truth, which can in turn lead them to, fit, lead them to separate themselves from those who are less devoted and pure in life. Religious groups can then easily stereotype, caricature each other and other groups. And with all of that in place, you can see why it's not too much of a leap for people then to get to a state of marginalizing and worse as a result of a claim to religious truth. There is a slippery slope in the human heart that likes to feel superior, and religion can tap into that. It can bring about marginalization, whether it's in the small things or seemingly small things of, of a parent of one faith not inviting a child of another faith to a birthday party, or maybe in the bigger, more global things of a religion uh, being able to have huge influence on government and lead to divisiveness and marginalization. And so, understandably, people can, very understandably, people can reject the idea of there being any unique truth at all, because tolerance of truths, plural, is the way to protect our individual freedom. It's the way to legislate, as it were, against marginalization and oppression. That's an increasingly common view in our culture that there must not be one truth because it will lead to oppression and marginalization. My, my wife and I were at a wedding recently and we were chatting to a friend of, her, friend of hers over dinner um, during the wedding and we, uh, she asked what I do, and so that was leads to an interesting discussion about faith and so on. And, and she explained that for her, there is no unique truth. She's a, a, a very bright academic. She explained that truth for her is whatever helps you to find personal fulfillment, as long as you don't harm anyone else in the meantime. 
And she felt that as soon as you make a claim to exclusive truth, you'd be in danger of being intolerant of other people's truths and therefore arrogant and potentially um, divisive. So I guess the second question is, if absolute truth can lead to oppression, does this idea of truth being relative or subjective, does that stand up as the way in which my friend phrased it and perhaps the lady in the video phrased it as well? Is there a problem with relative truth as well as with absolute truth? And forgive me for those of you who don't maybe love the sort of philosophy type stuff, this is a bit of a kind of philosophical argument, but if you think about it, there is... The phrase, there is no absolute truth, is a self-defeating statement, isn't it? You can't say, there is no absolute truth, because that statement clearly cannot be absolutely true. Yeah, to put it a different way, if you want to say that truth is relative, then that statement can at best only be relatively true. It kind of collapses under the weight of its own argument, purely logically speaking. You can't deny a claim to exclusive truth by making a claim to exclusive truth. So you might say, okay, fine, I, I can live with that to an extent, at least the logic of that argument, but I'm still worried that all kinds of bad things will happen when religious groups make claims to exclusive truth. And I get that, I really do. So let's just do four little things. Let's look at what I would suggest are four underlying premises or concerns or values that cause people to take that step and say there cannot be an absolute truth. Let's just look at four things and see whether they stand up. Because all, well, all, all very well for me to toss out the idea of relative truth not being possibly logically, but it does, it does come from something we feel very strongly. So let's see what we feel that comes behind that, um, that view, that objection. I think there are four of them. The first premise or concern about absolute truth is, well, it's kind of arrogant to claim otherwise. So there's a concern about arrogance, I think, that leads us to come towards this relative truth idea. And the illustration that has most famously been put forward to illustrate this point is that of an elephant, believe it or not, which you may or may not already um, have come across before. And the argument goes that the nature of religion is you've basically got all different people from different religions and they're all touching a part of the truth. So the elephant represents the whole truth, if you like, and the argument goes that really all religions, uh, Muhammad and Moses and, and Christ and Buddha, they're all blindfolded and they're touching something and they're explaining what it feels like. So the trunk feels like a tree and the, the, leg, the, leg, sorry, the leg feels like a tree and the trunk feels like a rope and so on. And they're all, they're all touching and doing their best to explain something of the truth. It's quite a famous argument. And the point goes, listen, why are religious groups arrogant enough to think they have the whole truth? Why can't they be humble enough just to say they're kind of stumbling around doing their best to explain the bit of the truth that they have encountered? Well, I'm not sure if that necessarily stands up because the problem with this line of argument is that essentially the person telling the story, in this case is me, I'm the one claiming to have full perspective. I'm the one saying, and all of these people, they're all blindfolded, they all can't quite see, but they're doing their best, whereas I've got full sight and full perspective, and with that in mind, I can explain what complete truth is to you. So Jesus and Muhammad and Moses and Buddha, they kind of just saw a bit, but I've got full and unique perspective and truth. That's quite a, bit, that's quite a big claim, possibly a little bit arrogant even, one might say. And what more, what's more, how can you know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior comprehensive knowledge or spiritual reality that you've just claimed nobody can have? 
I don't think necessarily it's any more arrogant to say that one religion does have unique truth than it is to say that real truth is that all the people who think that are definitely wrong. They're either both arrogant or they're both not. Second view behind truth being relative, I think is connected to this one. It's kind of the idea that all religions are the same. If you like, we're all touching a part of the same elephant, as it were. But I'm not sure necessarily that this stands up either, that all religions really are the same. Let me give you an example. It's a guy called Tim Keller, who's a leader of a church in New York, and he was once invited to be on a panel uh, discussing this exact thing. On the panel, he is he himself as a Christian leader and a Jewish rabbi and a Muslim imam. And they apparently had a great discussion, as you'd hope it would be, courteous and interesting and respectful. And interestingly, they came to a conclusion at the end. All three of them were happy to sign off on this statement. They all agreed that the following was true. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. So all three religious leaders all had a great discussion, polite, courteous, interesting. They all agreed we can't all be right. Two of us are fundamentally flawed about the truth of who God really is and what it means to relate to him. Putting it a different way, as a poet I've been reading a bit of recently called Steve Turner. He's not a Christian, and he says this. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, although we think his good morals are bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, and salvation. Most proponents of the religions, when they talk agreeably and knowingly and winsomely, would agree we can't all be right. There are fundamental differences. So we can't say that the truth is the same across those religions. So there's a concern that religious truth claims are arrogant and there's a view that there's no difference between them. Thirdly, there's another view that sits behind truth being relative, which is that any exclusive truth claim will end up being intolerant. And of course, tolerance is hugely prized, isn't it, in our culture? It's a very, very valuable commodity in our culture. We all want to be seen as tolerant, and we all really don't want to be seen as intolerant. Tolerance has protected our individual freedom, which we also prize very, very strongly in our culture. Now, of course, uh, tolerance, individual freedom, has been a huge force for good in many ways, defending democracy and human rights and freedom of speech and so on. Good things, clearly. But what does tolerance actually mean? What does it come to mean? Now, I can't prove this to be true, to stand up to my own argument, but I think this is what tolerance has kind of, excuse me, has kind of come to mean. Tolerance now means accepting all views as equally valid. I think that's what we now mean in our culture by tolerance, accepting all views as equally valid. In other words, whatever path we choose for ourselves is the right one, is the true one. And so under that kind of line of argument, I can be a Christian and, and you can be a Hindu and our friend can be a Buddhist and our other friend can be secular and our other friend could be a Zoroastrian and our other friend can be a spiritualist and we tolerate everyone's views as right for that one person. I think something of that came through in the video. Yet tolerance 
if you actually go by the dictionary definition, does seem to be a bit different to that. That's what the Oxford English Dictionary says about tolerance. The tolerance is a willingness to accept somebody or something, especially opinions or behaviors that you may not agree with, or people who are not like you. Now, if that's what tolerance means, that does change the dynamic. Because under that definition, if I agree with my Muslim friend who appeared on the video, um, that Jesus is not in fact God or the way to God, and that we should all follow Abraham, as he was saying, then in that case, I don't need to tolerate him if I agree with him. It's only if I disagree with him about the nature of God and how we can know forgiveness and, and whether Jesus really died and came back to life again that I actually need to be tolerant. It seems to me that true tolerance requires disagreement. It's not a matter of seeing everyone's views as equally true. It's how you treat people when you think that they're wrong that I think real tolerance is getting at. Now, I'm not saying that Christianity has the ultimate claim, the only claim to tolerance, but it's interesting that in the fifth century, the famous Christian writer, St. Augustine, talked about tolerance, what he said is Christian tolerance, as being, or he said Christians should be people who welcome into their home and in their community people who they fundamentally disagree with. That, he felt, was Christian tolerance. Fourth view, or the fourth thing that lies behind relative truth, is the idea this is a bit of a tangential link, but, but stay with me, is the idea that religious faith operates in a different category to other worldviews. What do I mean by that? Well, increasingly, the view is that faith is what people have who are prepared to put evidence and reason to one side. So the idea is there must be a bias engendered by faith that people of faith will always bring to the table when discussing anything, and it's their faith that affects their views on ethics, for example. Whereas a secularist or a materialist is operating in a neutral space, purely governed by reason and evidence. I think you'll find that's more and more what is at least caricatured. And faith is therefore the opposite of evidence and reason, and somebody from a secular point of view is operating in a neutral space. However, I'm not sure that necessarily stands up, because everyone has a worldview that they bring to the table at what it means to be human. You see, ultimately, let me just explain this in a different way, religion is not ultimately belief in God or belief in the supernatural. It's not what religion ultimately is, given that uh, Zen Buddhism doesn't believe in a God and, and uh, Hinduism doesn't believe in anything beyond the material world. So you could better describe religion as a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are, and the most important things that human beings should spend their life doing. With that definition in mind, it's interesting that many people would say something like this. The material world is all there is. When we die, we just rot. Therefore, the important thing is to choose what makes you happy and let, not let others impose their views on you. Now, that sounds to me like a set of assumptions about the nature of things. You might even call it an implicit religion if you wanted to be a little bit provocative. And it seems to me that lots of supposedly non-religious views still contain an account about the meaning of life along with a recommendation about how to live based on an account of things. And the point is that even I think the most secular pragmatist comes to the table with deep commitments and narrative accounts about what it means to be human. Many of those will be demonstrably true through evidence, but many of those will be instinctive feelings about how life is, what it should be like, and what a human is. Let me give you 
an example. Let's take something not controversial at all, like divorce laws and marriage, for example. So your, your view of what is right for divorce laws will be um, purely based on what you think marriage is, and what you think marriage is for. So if you think marriage is mainly, let's say, it's mainly for the benefit of rearing of children and for the good of the whole of society, that's what marriage is, then you'll make divorce very difficult. If you think the purpose of marriage is more primarily for the happiness and flourishing of the individuals who enter it, then you'll make divorce much more easy. Now, the former view is grounded in a view of human flourishing and well-being, in which the family is more important than the individual, and goes back to moral traditions like Confucianism and Judaism and even Christianity and so on. Whereas the latter approach is a more individualistic view of human nature, based on, I guess, the Enlightenment's understanding of individual freedom and so forth. My point is that the divorce laws that you think will work will be based on what you fundamentally think marriage is, and what, or even more than that, on what you think really means, makes human beings happy and makes them flourish. So what I'm trying to say is everyone is making truth claims, and often, not always, often those truth claims have fundamental, unprovable faith commitments to them about what it means to be truly human. So, what have we said so far? Well done for staying with me. There's no doubt that it's very possible that religion and its exclusive track claims the truth can prompt a sense of superiority in its adherence. We've all witnessed that, and maybe some of us have even fallen into that trap. I know I have. And when human beings feel superior to others, that leads to all kinds of damaging things. And therefore, many people have rejected the idea of a unique religious claim, in our case, specifically the uniqueness of the claims of Jesus Christ, because they seem either arrogant or intolerant or potentially divisive. But actually, we need to, make, we need to accept that we're all making truth claims all of the time about what it means to be human and how we should live as a result. The question is, what is the truth claim that Christianity makes and what does it lead to? So what is the truth claim Christianity makes and what does it lead to? And that's the third and final point this morning. Is there the possibility of truth and grace? Or grace and truth? <laughs> At the beginning of John's gospel, uh, John says that Jesus came, quotes, with truth and grace, which is a wonderful description. So my question is, is it possible to have both? Can it be possible to hold on to truth strongly and be filled with grace and compassion? Or as the, the uh, Connect Conference video guy was saying, which I forgot he was going to say, is it possible for grace, for truth and love, sorry, to go hand in hand? A bit more philosophy, if you can just bear with me for a few more minutes. He's an academic and he's a Christian apologist called uh, Michael Ramsden. He explains that whenever you look at any attempt to give global answers to the big questions of life, you'll probably do so by falling into one of three categories. Three kind of systems of thought, as it were. One would be a, a way of thinking as a system of thought. Second would be a way of feeling, a type of experience. And thirdly would be a, a way of doing as a way to live. Most answers to the big questions of life will fit into one of those three categories or a merger of them. Thinking as a system of thought, feeling as a type of experience, or doing as a way to live. And the reason why I think Christianity is unique is because it doesn't fit into any of these categories. 
It is. It's not only a system of thought, though it is, I think, incredibly profound. It's not only a type of experience, though it will affect how you feel. And it's not our doing as a way to live, although it will affect how you live. The uniqueness of Christ, I think, is that he didn't simply come into the world to tell us what to think about God, or to give us new experiences of God, or to tell us to do things for God. Jesus Christ claimed to be God, which is a unique claim. That's a claim repeated many times throughout scripture. Some people, not least Muslims, would sometimes contest that 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 claim was made, but that's a whole another talk. In John 14, uh, Jesus' disciples are doing what maybe some of us are doing this morning. They're trying to understand what truth is. They're trying to understand who he is and what the truth is. And this is what happens. We'll cut to the scene in John 14, verse 5. It'll be on the screen or you can use your Bibles. Verse 5, it says, Thomas, one of his disciples, said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a pretty exclusive claim so far. He goes on to say more. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that would be enough for us. Show us God. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And what I think is fascinating there is that Thomas and Philip are grappling with Jesus and truth in two of the three methods that I explained before. In the sense that Thomas is asking Jesus, what should we do? How can we know the way? He wants truth to be revealed through a a way of doing, a way to live. Philip is asking for an experience, isn't he? He's saying, show us the Father. He wants truth revealed our our feeling as as a type of experience. And yet Jesus is claiming that the nature of the message he wants to bring is seen in him. He's claiming to be God, not just claiming to to be revealing things about God or bringing us closer to God or giving us an experience of God, but he's claiming to be God. Now, of course, anyone can claim to be God. That in itself doesn't prove anything. Just as if I claim to be a world-famous ballet dancer doesn't make it true just because I've claimed it to be true. I guess I say this pretty much... um, every week, the whole of this truth claim hinges on the resurrection. The whole thing hinges on the resurrection. If Christ really did come back to life again, then he utterly vindicated these claims to be God and to be the way and the truth and the life. The whole thing boils down to the resurrection. In some ways, we could, we could have just skipped this whole series to the very end, which would be the evidence of the resurrection. Because if that's true, Everything else follows. Now, I'm glad we didn't, and I think most of you, I hope, are glad we didn't too. But the whole thing does hinge on that. Now, remember, John described Jesus as coming in truth and grace. It's really important we hear that about Jesus, that he came in truth and grace. Not truth and intolerance and arrogance and divisiveness. He came with truth and grace. That means that not only did he have the truth, but there was a beauty and a compassion and a humility and a kindness about the way that he spoke and lived. Truth and grace, grace and truth. One of the ways that I know that he came in grace was because he loved us enough 
to point out some of the darkness that exists in every human heart, including yours and mine. Grace made him point that out and expose that. I know that grace means that he invites us to come to him, to him personally, not just to a path or a a new system of thought or an experience or a behavior pattern. Jesus has come to me. I will attend to your heart. I will mend it. I'll make it new, in fact, he says. I love that scene in The Passion of the Christ, which is a bit of poetic license on Mel Gibson's behalf, um, but it does reflect the truth of scripture that's talked about in Revelation. But Mel Gibson puts those revelation words into the, into the, uh, the mouth of Jesus when Jesus stumbles with a cross as he's walking towards the, the, um, to Golgotha to be crucified. He stumbles and the, this great big cross crushes him and he's covered in blood and it's just his mother's looking on as only a mother can, weeping in the, the horror. And Jesus looks at her and says, I'm making all things new. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm here to do. Not to give a system of thought or an experience only. I'm here to renew human beings, to make their hearts new, to solve the blackness and the darkness that's in all of us, and also the desire for nobility and honor and goodness that's in us to bring that to fruition. That's what Jesus claimed to be able to do, to make us into a new creation. It's a unique claim. So, as we close, if you are skeptical about these things, you're skeptical about the claims of Christ and the resurrection, the gospel and so forth, then I hope you know by definition must doing this kind of uh, series that we're so glad that you're here and we welcome you here. We really want every shade of view in some respect under the sun to be amongst us. Let me just invite you to consider a few things as we reflect in a second with singing. First of all, I agree the church needs to own its errors that its claim to having an exclusive truth has sometimes led to division and oppression and worse, and the church needs to own that. But that does not per se make the the claim to unique truth wrong. Will you say that because the church on occasions has acted with superiority and oppression and marginalization because of its exclusive claim to truth, because of that, as that happened, will you say therefore that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? I'm not sure the two necessarily logically can equate. Will you also say that no absolute truth claims can be made whilst, like all of us, making a number of absolute truth claims all the time? The question for you to consider and to explore is just real simple. Is Christ's claim to be God and to have proven it through the resurrection, is that true? He claimed to be God. We, we know that. Did he then prove it to be true by rising from death to life. If he did, he was God. And he gets to say some things about what truth is. To explore the gospel, explore the resurrection, and take as long as you need to do to do so. And for those of us that are Christians, those of us that Jesus has already got to work on, making us new, it's one of the kind of contradictions of the Bible that we're told that we are a new creation, and yet at the same time Jesus is in the process of making us new. It's like both and. The, the process seems to be, in my experience, it's taking a furiously long time, but he's doing it. He is making us new, making us a little bit more like him. What's happening in the life of a follower of Christ? In that case, are we in becoming a people like Jesus, who come to other people with truth and grace, grace and truth, both together? You see, the exclusive, and it is an exclusive, unique truth came of Christians, should surely lead to what true tolerance is, which is behavior that is more open 
more hospitable, more loving, more gracious towards other people. If you're a Christian this morning, you have the strongest possible resource for practicing tolerance and sacrificial service and generosity and peacemaking. Because at the heart of your view of ultimate reality is a man who died for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness in the process. There is no greater resource to practice true tolerance than to be united through faith to him. And so I think as you reflect on this, as we do in this next uh, song or two, that can only lead to a radically different way of relating to those that are different. So Jamie and band, why don't you come and lead us in singing, which is a great way of not just worshipping, but also reflecting. And how will you respond and reflect and worship is, I guess, largely up to you. But let me suggest that if you're skeptical, you can take these moments of singing and music and use it to reflect on what I've encouraged you to reflect upon. And if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, maybe reflect like I have this week. To what degree does genuine Christian tolerance live within me? To what degree do I walk in the footsteps of Christ with truth and grace? I guess what this Connect Conference is all about. Is it possible to not only believe truth, but to proclaim truth and to live truth and to hold the truth? And is it possible to do it with love, with grace? Because you can go one way and be uh, aggressive and arrogant about truth. Or you can go the other way and dilute it and ignore it and be embarrassed about it. Or you can trust that through faith you are united to Jesus himself and he walked the perfect way. Grace and truth put together. Let's stand and sing.